Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Good morning. My name is Adam Godfrey. I serve here as one of the deacons uh, alongside my wife, Nicole. We love this church, and it is my honor and privilege to be able to bring to the Word of God to you this morning. Tony is still out. I think he'll be back next week, and uh, we're all looking forward to that for sure. Everybody sins. It's just a reality. If you're a living, breathing human, you're a sinner. How's that for a good morning, huh? Maybe I won't be asked back, but everybody sins. It's what you do after you sin that makes the difference between life and death. Proverbs 28, 13 reads, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. There's a promise on both sides of that. You see, the one who covers his transgressions will not prosper, but the one who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. We're going to see this play out some today as we look at Psalm 51. The Psalms were the main songbook of the early church. They were designed by God to awaken and express and shape the thoughts of those who believed in God. We learn from the Psalms how to think about discouragement and guilt, we learn from the Psalms and how to feel in times of discouragement and, and regret. The Psalms show us how to be discouraged well and how to regret well, as, as, and also how to praise God well. And today we're going to see how the most famous psalmist reacts after being caught in sin. Before we dive any further, let's pray over our time this morning and let me settle myself. Father God, we continue our worship this morning by now digging into your word. God, I pray that the words I speak would be clear and that your message this morning would be understood as we dive into a tough yet thanks to Jesus hopeful topic. Allow our hearts and our minds to be open to everything you have to say to us. God, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our strength, our Redeemer in whom we trust. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's important here with Psalm 51 to actually start with the heading of the Scripture. You know, any Bible-savvy person may know there's little sections of Scripture, and, and above that there's a little heading that's been added in. That's actually been, edited, been put in by editors and publishers, much like the chapter and verse designations that we have, just so we can be a little bit more efficient in our use of the Bible in our study. But in Psalm 51, there's actually, as you'll see if you look at the text there, there's actually a little heading uh, in my Bible, it's all in caps, that's actually part of the Scripture and part of the manuscript itself. It's, Psalm 51 is one of the few pieces of scripture that we have designated to the historical origin. It's pinpointed right here for us. Let's read. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. If you'll hold your place there at Psalm 51 and turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 12, the context of this a little better. What happened with David and Bathsheba is pretty well known, but I don't want to assume that in a room like this that everyone knows the story. So let me review a little bit with the crisp biblical words of 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we'll get to chapter 12. 
It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. David continues to try to cover this sin by bringing Bathsheba's husband Uriah home from the battlefield and says, if I can get her or him to lay with her, then they'll think it's his child. But Uriah was too noble of a man that while his comrades were out fighting, he didn't want to be with his wife. So David comes up with another great plan and has him killed to just to cover up that sin. That's what we do, right? We, we always get into a lie. We have to keep lying and keep sinning to cover up what we're doing. David is an example of that here. Then chapter 11, verse 27, in what John Piper calls one of the most understated sentences of the Bible, 2 Samuel 11 ends with these words. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. When 2 Samuel 12 picks up, we would, most would say, are about a year after David's time with Bathsheba. We know this because it mentions the child that was conceived. And as I've learned now, having two kids of my own, it takes about 10 months to get here. Whoever came up with the nine-month thing is wrong. It was about 10 months. So we're going to say 10 to 12 months after that, the next chapter picks up here. Nathan, who is the prophet, kind of like David's pastor, uh, verse 1 tells us that the Lord sent him to talk to David. At this point, it doesn't appear that there's really anybody that knows about David and Bathsheba, except maybe some accomplices who helped the arrangement happen. Nathan starts with verse 1. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but the one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, it grew up with him and with his children. It really had become like a pet to him. Nathan continues, and I'll summarize here. It used to eat from their table and drink from their cup, and it was just like a new, another child to them, which is a little weird, but we all know those people who have pets that are indistinguishable from their kids, so maybe we can relate. Well, verse 4, this rich guy who had more sheep than he knew what to do with had someone from out of town come for a visit. Instead of preparing one of his own sheep, he goes and steals the little lamb from this family, pretty much just because he could get away with it and there was no way they could stop him. So look at verse 5. David reacts. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. The NIV translation says David burned with anger. He explodes in anger and says to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done, the man has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan looks back at David, and in the most direct applicational point of a sermon ever, says, you are that man. Here's a painting of what we might think that looked like that I found. It, 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 it's so revealing in that of David, even with his arms up, saying, I, what are you talking about? Not me, but Nathan there, pointing him out, calling him on his sin. I would be curious to know how long of a pause there was between you are that man and then what Nathan says next. Have you ever thought that that preacher is talking straight to me? Man, he's talking right to me. There's nobody else in the room. It's just Nathan and David. David's conviction is inescapable and it, it's unexcusable. David has condemned himself to death right out of his own mouth. 
Verse 7, Nathan says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hands of Saul. Skip to the end of the verse. And if this were too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? David then says back to Nathan in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin, and you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Just dropped the mic moment, didn't it? And he just calls him out and says, this is what's going to happen. I'm going home. Everybody sins. It's what you do after you sin that makes the difference between life and death. It's what happens next that makes David a man after God's own heart. David's going to confess his sin in all of its ugliness and throw himself on the mercy of God. When we're exposed in our sin, whether by a friend, a spouse, a co-worker, your kids, your own conscience, we react in one of four different ways. I didn't put these in your notes, but they'll be on the screen. You may want to jot them down. First, we hide it. We just flat out deny it. We may admit that this was something that we've had trouble with in the past, but not anymore. I'm quite sure there are probably people in this church who have done things that we don't want anybody to know about. We hide it. Secondly, we rationalize it. We explain why sin just ain't that bad. I didn't really hurt anybody. It was a little thing. It's small. It's private. Everybody else is doing it these days. It's not the 50s anymore. I'm not Hitler. If you knew what my friends were like, you wouldn't think this was that bad. My desires are just too strong. I was born this way. Thirdly, we blame shift. It's not even my fault. You have no idea what I've been through, what my situation is like, what's been done to me. It's really not even my fault. It's really my parents. In fact, all three of those responses we can trace back to the Garden of Eden. The very first sin that was committed, Adam and Eve do all three of these. They start or they, hide, they first hide themselves from God. They try to hide in the bushes. Then God exposes them, and they start to rationalize. Then they start to pass the blame. God looks at the man and says, why did you do this? Adam says, the woman that you gave me made me do this. There's only other two people in the world, and he blames them both. says, the woman that you gave me made me do this. He turns to Eve, and Eve's like, snake, snake, snake did it. We rationalize, we blame shift. Fourthly, we repent. The dictionary defines repent as to feel or express sincere regret or remorse about one's wrongdoing or sin, which is what David does. It's what we're to do. We confess the full extent of our sin and we throw ourselves on the full mercy of God. This psalm gives us likely the clearest example of what gospel-centered repentance looks like. So let's go back to Psalm 51. If you've got my Bible, it's on page 474. Many of you may not know how to repent, and this psalm gives us the anatomy of this gospel-centered repentance. I have today for you five essential elements of gospel-centered repentance. 
Psalm 51, just so you know, it's, it's not just something that you say after you commit adultery and have someone killed. This should be our daily posture as someone who loves Jesus and is trying to follow him every day. This is how we should respond. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. What is the sole purpose of David's plea? The mercy of God. According to what? God's steadfast love. Write this down, number one. Gospel-centered repentance makes its sole hope the mercy of God. Notice what is missing from David's statement is what's missing when I usually am confronted in my sin. David doesn't bring up any of his past accomplishments here, does he? God, you know, on the whole, I've been a pretty awesome king. Remember that whole Goliath thing? Yeah, that was me. I feel like I've had a pretty nice track record, some capital in the bank. You can let me off this time. There's no rationalization that David makes to, to lessen the badness of his sin. Do you know how hard it is to be king? Do you know how hard it is to have all these wives? Nobody's cooperating. I just couldn't deal with it anymore. That's why I went with Bathsheba. You don't see any of that. There's no bargaining with God. Where David makes a bunch of promises about the future. You ever do that? You kind of ask for God's forgiveness on credit. Like, okay, if you just forgive me this time and, and just don't, don't hold it against me too much, I'll, I'll be the best Christian. I'll be the best husband. I'll be the best father you've ever seen. I'll go to church every week. I'll serve and harvest kids. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Maybe not so much a sin issue, but I... I probably remember bargaining with God a couple years ago when I was watching my favorite baseball team try to win the World Series for the first time in 108 years. Yes, Lord, if you'll just let this happen, I'll go to church every week and I'll tithe 50%. Maybe not me, but I'm sure somebody was doing that. David doesn't do this at all. He makes his soul hope God's mercy. There's just something instinctual that says that God's mercy isn't enough, though. You've got to show God why he should be merciful. Instead of merciful to other people, he needs to be merciful to you. You've got to separate yourself from the pack. You've got to show him why he should be merciful to us. But here's the question. Is God's mercy great enough that you could throw yourself entirely on it and nothing else? Look again at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Three times, have mercy according to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy. This actually kind of goes back to what God promised in Exodus 34. Uh, It reads as, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. David knew that there were guilty who would not be forgiven, and there were guilty who by some mysterious work of God would, have their, would not have their guilt counted against them. Today we know more of that mystery because we're on this side of the cross, and we know that Christ is our mercy. Christ is the foundation for our mercy. We must lay hold of that same mercy in the same way that David did. It's nothing we've done. It's only the mercy of God. 
Is God's mercy great enough that you can make it the entire basis of your hope? Good news. No one who has ever done this, no one who has ever made God's mercy their sole plea has ever been turned away. We see this in the Gospels. Gentiles, prostitutes, adulterers, unclean, murderers, the thief on the cross, all of them felt mercy. Abundant, overflowing mercy from Jesus. Really, the only ones that we see that don't are the, one, are the ones that are turned away are those who still cling on to some reason why God was obligated to be merciful to them. We could say that being delivered from your sin is the easy part. It's being delivered from your self-justification that most people fail at. We think that before God can save us from our sin, he has to save us from all these other reasons that he uh, should save us from our sin. Because before God saves you, he, he has to save you from that, the religious steps that you take. That seems to be the more difficult task. Our sin separates us from God, but our self-righteousness and self-justification keeps us from God. God has abundant mercy for sinners. It's your self-righteousness that keeps you from that mercy. Why do you think God will be gracious to you? Does it have anything to do with you? If you think that it does, you will not access the mercy of God. But if you cast yourself entirely on the mercy of God, you'll find there's no limit and no end to this mercy. God save us from our sin, yes. That's the easy part. God save us from our religion, that's the tough part. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Write this down. Number one, gospel-centered repentance makes its soul hope the mercy of God. Number two, gospel-centered repentance acknowledges that the sin we committed is deeply inherent in who we are. When you've been confronted in your sin, do you ever find yourself resisting what they are saying? Even when you know it's true. You go through one of those stages from earlier, you try to blame shift while everyone else is doing it, or you turn it around on them. Oh yeah, you want to talk about my sin, let's talk about what you did. You ever do that? What David does here is completely the opposite of any of those. He actually owns up to it. I know my sin, it's right here in front of my face. If you can't see it, there's something wrong with you. Verse 5, David actually takes it about as far as it'll go. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, you don't even know the half of it. Sin just comes naturally to me. This stuff runs in my family. I don't have to practice. I'm just good at it. No one taught me how to be a selfish, manipulative, self-focused jerk. I'm just good at it. Ask my wife. I even see it at our kids. My precious cute kids that all of you are always fawning over, you don't see them at home. <laughs> They're cute, but they are depraved. If you think your kids don't sin, invite us over. My girls will quickly show them what it takes to sin. <laughs> all kids are born as rebels. We're all brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did our mothers conceive us? We're all rebels against authority. A lot of people may question how original sin got there, but very few deny that it's there. Now I realize that other people have sinned against you and other people have contributed to your sin, but you're never going to get anywhere until you own your responsibility and the part of it that you've done. 
You aren't deprived of anything. You're depraved. That's why you are how you are. Yes, other people have done things against you, but it's your part that's essentially the problem. No, my problem is that I hung out with the wrong crowd. No, your problem is not that you hung out with the wrong crowd. It's that you are the wrong crowd. That's why you enjoyed being with them. There's an old song that says it pretty well. The lyric says, Lord, I am crooked deep down. Everyone is crooked deep down. Stop blaming everyone else and own it. You're brought forth with the very problems that have led you to the place where you are right now. David says, my problem isn't that I committed adultery in a weak moment. The problem is that I am an adulterer. And I just did and acted out all the things that were true in my heart. Look at the next verse, verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, is that true? Did David really only sin against God? He probably sinned against Bathsheba. He definitely sinned against Uriah. So why does he say this here? What's he mean, against you and you only have I sinned? Well, this is actually the heart of the whole matter. Number three, gospel-centered repentance is directed first toward God. There are two very important reasons that David says, against you and you only have I sinned, and I've given them there as an A and a B, 3A. David realizes that his sin began as a sin against God. David is saying, why, why is it that I needed this feeling of power that came from sleeping with Bathsheba? Why did I need that? Why did I run to her? Why did I crave her beauty? Because I didn't crave your beauty, God. Why did I want to be held by her arms? Because I didn't feel like I was being held by your arms, God. All of our sin starts in a broken relationship with God. We aren't satisfied with what God's given us. Or we don't trust God to take care of us. So we go around God outside of his boundaries to get what we want. Why are you jealous of somebody? You look at them and you say, I want what they've gotten. You look at their job, at their pocketbook, at their cars, at their talents, whatever it is, and you say, God, I'm not satisfied with what you've given me. I wish I had that. I don't trust what you gave me, and I'm not satisfied with you or your plan. Think about even just the Ten Commandments, or, what, or even when Jesus, what he calls the greatest commandment. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. If we could obey that, everything else would just fall into place. The problem with any of the commandments that we're to follow is that we break it because of a lack of trust and satisfaction with God. And this is what David recognizes there. His sin began as a sin against God. 3B, David realizes that God was the most significant one he had offended. What he had done to Uriah was hideous and despicable, yes. But what David did to God was way worse. God was the one who had created him, who had given him everything that he had. He saved him. And at this point, David is overwhelmed with this truth. Do you realize that every breath you draw or ever will draw comes from God? Do you understand that when we commit sin, how deserving we are of his wrath? you understand that our sin against him required the brutal, bloody death of his son to purchase forgiveness? Jesus did not go through what he went through because of what we do to each other. 
Jesus went through what he went through because of what we did to God. David is overwhelmed by this and says, you, you only have I sinned against. Understand what Jesus has given to you. Understand how gracious he's been, how kind he is to you. Realize the goodness that he's poured out on you. And realize that when you take authority and say, I will live how I want to live, I will practice boldly the very things that put you on that cross, realize the heinousness of that sin to God. Here's a question. When was the last time that you were emotional about, your sin, about what your sin had done to God? When was the last time that you were emotional about what your sin had done to God? And I don't mean that you just cried because you were embarrassed or had regrets or simply because you'd been caught. When was the last time you wept because of what your sin had done to God? Most of us get upset at what our sin has done to ourselves or what it's done to other people. But God, David is showing us here that until you are most upset at what your sin does to God, you will not really change. As long as our repentance is just a reaction to getting caught, you're not really repenting. But when you realize that it was your hand that held the hammer, that put that nail through the arms and the feet of your God, of your Savior, when you're overwhelmed with that emotion, that is when you start to change. That's why David, swept up in this emotion, says, against you, you only have I sinned. Verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Those secret places of our heart. God puts truth in there and changes our heart with his truth. Most of the time when we repent, we just focus on the action. God's focus is on the heart that led to the action. He doesn't care about your conformity. If inwardly, you'd much rather be doing something else. No more than a, a man would want to be with his wife if every time they were together, she's thinking of somebody else. God doesn't want to dwell in a heart that has a desire to be sinful any more than I would want to live in a beautiful brick home, but in every single room there's rotting, maggot-infested corpses in every room. Until you deal with your heart, any change that you make will be superficial. God doesn't want just a year of dutiful obedience. He wants to spend an eternity with you of willing, joyful obedience, of passionate desire. The only way that's going to happen is if the desires of your heart are to change. That's why the focus of David's repentance is not on what he's done, but who he had become. Again, I didn't just commit adultery. I am the type of person who commits adultery. You ever apologize for something you said to somebody and the apology, the apology sounds like this? Remember when we had that argument and we were both mad at each other and I called you a stupid, selfish, incompetent jerk who had no future in your life? Yeah? Well, I didn't really mean that. Liar! Yes, you did. In that moment, that's exactly what you meant. What you're actually needing to confess is I am such a needy, selfish, self-focused jerk that when people do things that bother me, I get so angry at them that I hate them and I accuse them of all things because I am so self-centered. That's what the confession should really sound like because then you were talking about what is wrong with your heart and not just trying to brush it under the rug as, I didn't mean that. It's exactly what you meant. 
You focus on the heart because that's actually where the perversity begins. This is what David is acknowledging and leads into verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Seems a bit random, doesn't it? What's hyssop? Does anybody have any hyssop on them today? Well, if you go to Wikipedia, you're just going to see a branch with delicate little flowers and it comes in a few different colors. But if you look to your Bible, for examples, what they, what they used that for was a little bit more significant. During the Passover, God told them to take the blood of the lamb and take the hyssop, the flower, the branch with the flowers on it, dip it in the blood, and put it on the doorpost. So that when the angel of death saw the blood that had been applied, the angel would pass over their place. Another time in Leviticus, when God was telling them how a leper would be cleansed, he said that when a leper is to be cleansed, you take the hyssop, dip it in the blood, sprinkle it on the leper, and the leper would be considered clean. David is saying that he needs a forgiveness that removes the penalty of sin and cleanses his leprous heart. You see where this is going? This whole psalm screams for the gospel. Number four, gospel-centered repentance finds its hope in the gospel. Gospel-centered repentance finds its hope in the gospel. The next few verses are a series of prayers from David. We're going to start with verse 9 and kind of go through them quickly here. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You see what David is calling out for? I need someone who can put away my sin. This isn't just forgive and forget. That's like the worst thing that I hear people say about sin and God. And it's just, it's not what happens. If God could just forget about our sin, who couldn't? You. What do you call someone who commits a crime and then just forgets that it happened? That person is insane. So what's God do? It's also not like in Men in Black when they take the neuralizer, that little silver thing, and push the button and it flashes and you just forget that they were even there. That's not what happens. What David is saying is I need a forgiveness that doesn't just forget sin. I need a forgiveness that takes the penalty of sin, absorbs it, reverses it. Jesus Christ would live the life that I was supposed to live and suffered the curse that I was supposed to die so that after he suffered that curse, there is not a drop of punishment for me. God cannot ask for two penalties for the same sin. And because Jesus had suffered the death penalty in my place, there's not a drop of punishment. None of it remains for me. I don't have to worry about hell one bit. Jesus Christ suffered hell in our place. That is the forgiveness that David is crying out for. I need cleansing. I don't need someone to say, oh, it's going to be okay. Just get back out there and try again. Because the person who did it the first time is likely going to be the same person who does it again. I need something that can cleanse my heart, recreate it, restructure it. I need the healing power of Jesus who can change the leper's spots and make it clean again. I need that to happen to my heart. David's saying, I need a salvation that can create in me a clean heart and can renew a right spirit that can replace my old bad desires with new desires. How are the desires of your heart ever going to change? You can't just will it into being. 
Nicole and I have been following a weight loss program for a few months now, and we've had great success. She's lost almost 90 pounds, and I'm right about 60 pounds that I've lost. We've had great success. I wish it was easy. I wish that I had a desire to eat broccoli and salad every day. I just don't. I desire to eat Oreos by the sleeve. <laughs> I want to just wave a magic wand and say, change, and now I just want a big bowl of broccoli before I go to bed. In fact, a few weeks ago, uh, a couple weeks into the plan, a small group member, uh, it was their turn for snack. They meant well, but in all their years of wisdom, they thought it was a great idea to bring a buffet of Oreo flavors to the, to the house. I didn't even go into the kitchen. I knew what would happen if I went in there. So I stayed in the living room and ate my little meal plan approved snack that it tasted all right. They're, they're pretty good, I must say. But there are no Oreos. I can't change that desire. Who knows what would have happened if I'd gone in that kitchen? <laughs> How do I change my desire for sin? I may sound like a broken record here, but you change those, those desires by the gospel. You learn to love God by experiencing his extravagant love for you. And in response to the gospel, that's how your heart is recreated. That's how you're changed. What happens when God sets us free and we experience the gospel is that our heart is restructured so that we desire, we yearn, we want to be with God. Of course, that doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. But when your heart is changed, you yearn to be with God. You desire to do godly things. A lot of us may think that Jesus has this like magic visa card and just wipes out all our debt. That's not what happens. Jesus is something that restructures your heart. Not only does he forgive your sin and absorb that penalty, but he actually breaks the power of sin so that the very structure of your heart is changed. Imagine that if in a moment I could take a pill or wave that magic wand and change all my Oreo and Netflix desires into broccoli and Pilates. What Jesus does through the gospel is that he recreates your heart so that your spirit is renewed and it is willing. Having experienced the love of God, you develop a love for God. You can't do it. Jesus does it. By putting his love in your heart and filling you with the Holy Spirit. Number five, gospel-centered repentance embraces the future promised by the gospel. Gospel-centered repentance embraces the future promised by by the gospel. The rest of the verses in this psalm pretty much just say the same thing. Verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. What just happened? 
David is no longer focusing on his kingdom, but he's now turned around and focused on God's kingdom. Do you see that? When he was with sin in sin with Bathsheba, he was focused on his kingdom, his desires, his heart. And now he's turned to God's kingdom and what God wants him to do and the things that please the Lord. Repentance always involves a turning from your kingdom to God's. When that happens, God is able to use these things that damaged you most and begin to use them for his good in his kingdom. Pastor Josh spoke about that last week. God is doing all things for your good and his glory. David is going to be a more effective king. He's going to be a better symbol of Jesus now because he's been through this than he ever would have if he had never been through Some of you may find this hard to believe that you've got pain and shame and guilt clinging to those mistakes that you've made. God has a plan for you in those things. He's going to take those wounded parts and use them for his kingdom. Surely there's so many stories in here of things that people have been through and things that have happened to them that now they have a better understanding of God's grace. They can minister to others now based on what they've been through. God, in in just the miraculous way that he works, takes even our mistakes and turns them into his greatest triumph. This whole psalm cries out for something that David had never seen with his eyes, but you and I know. It cries out for the gospel. It's all throughout this chapter. What What did Nathan say to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 12? You won't die, but your son will die. David's son was innocent, just a baby. He wasn't the one who had committed all these sins. You see the picture there? David, your sin deserves death, but you are not going to die. One of your sons is going to die. That little baby, who we don't even know his name, gave us a picture of another son that would be born of David. So that when he was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, the angels told the shepherds, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. An angel of the Lord had earlier told Joseph, you will call his name Jesus, which means God is my salvation, because he will save his people from their sin. The only way that you're ever going to be able to break this cycle of sin is by embracing what Jesus has done for you. And his forgiveness of your sin is given to you not as a gift, or I'm sorry, it is as a gift, and not something you can earn. Then you will have the ability to break the power of sin in your life. Some of you are struggling with anger and jealousy. God loves you the same. There are some of you in here who may struggle with legalism or hatefulness, sexual sin, gossip, lying. God loves you the same. Some of you have just been in a nonstop cycle of sin and just don't even see an end in sight. The gospel says that you don't have to overcome those sins to earn God's love because Jesus overcame it and gave it to you as a gift. The power to overcome sin is not found in some self-will, some self-help or self-reliance. You don't take steps to gradually get closer to God. In one moment, you receive everything from him the billions of steps that he takes to get close to us. It is found in embracing what Christ has done for you. When you embrace that, it snaps the power of sin. That's the gospel. Gospel, The gospel snaps that power. 
Some of you have this sense of dread about your sin. You, you don't have to listen to that. God speaks to you with hope. I know your heart is broken. I know you're embarrassed. I know you regret that. You may have noticed I skipped a verse earlier. It was for right now. Look at verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Anyone in here ever broken a bone and rejoiced? Probably not. That's not the way that usually works. But David says, let the broken bones rejoice. Because that breaking was a part of his healing. You can tell when a house is in disrepair what's going to happen, what the owner of the house is going to do based on what kind of tool he's using. If there's a wrecking ball outside, he plans to destroy. But if he picks up his toolbox with his hammer and his screwdriver and his chisel, he wants to go restore that home. Jesus took the wrecking ball of wrath from God for our sin so that God could use his chisel on our heart. What happens is he breaks your heart, he breaks your bones so that he can heal you. His goal is your deliverance, not your destruction. His goal is your healing, not your condemnation. It's the voice of the shepherd who bled and died for your sin, who was resurrected to make you new, calling to you, saying, come to me. I will make all things new. I can heal you. I can change you. I can break the curse. I can restore you. Don't resist his voice. It's a voice of healing that's calling out to you. Believe it and receive it. Some of you need forgiveness this morning. Your forgiveness has been purchased. Jesus paid it all. There's nothing you can do to add to it. Throw yourself on the mercy of God. Don't tell him any reason he ought to accept you. Say, God, you're merciful enough. Believe the gospel that God forgives you and God heals you. Ryan's going to come up now and sing a song over you. I want you to spend some time in prayer. Undoubtedly, you've thought of sin that you need to repent from. and um, I really only have one application point for this sermon. You are that man. You are that woman. Repent. As he sings, I want you to deal with that in your life. If you're a believer, you've, you've thought of that sin, you know what you need to do. Non-believer in the room, today is your day that you can find hope and forgiveness in Christ. Pray to God, acknowledging who he is. Confess your sin and repent in order to find salvation today. As Ryan sings, deal with you and God, and then as you feel led, feel free to stand up and join him in singing.
To me, the chief of saints, come be forgiven and sinned, the Lamb of God for sin. Open my lips and my mouth and declare your endless praise, and teach me wisdom and secret heart. Lord is gracious.